Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front. I, I walk through the history of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in in uh, theology class at Bible College. There is a little bit of this that's technical and historical. So uh, if if that bores you. I hope it won't. I hope it's. I hope I, I'm able to deliver it interestingly enough, so you're not going to sleep. Um, but if you do go to sleep, just ask your your someone sitting next to you to elbow you if you uh, can't can't stay awake. Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we're. I I, I kind of thought we would finish up tonight. I don't believe we will. I think we'll come back again next week, and it's not on the. It's not kind of on an outline in front of you, but um, we'll work through the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of bearing fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. We'll look at that kind of in detail, maybe look a little deeper at the issue of the Holy Spirit giving us spiritual gifts. Um, so we'll work through that next week in the the regular ministry of the Spirit in our lives. But before we, we moved to that element, what we do as Christians or the Holy Spirit working in us in a direct way or in a regular way, I felt like we needed to look at a, a doctrine that was, um, well, is controversial because it's seen from a variety of different, different perspectives depending on the denominational kind of background that you're from. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? If you will, let's look at two verses. We could look at more, but we're just going to look at two to begin with. Matthew 3.11 uh, and then 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. We're going to look at those just simply to set some context for what we're talking about while we're using this terminology. We're using it because it's biblical terminology. When we use the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're using language that the Bible uses on a number of occasions indeed. Matthew 3.11, uh, John the Baptist saying about uh, the one who was to come. He's prophesying about the Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that phrase, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is repeated in the other gospel accounts, repeated a number of times in, in context of John the Baptist saying about Jesus, Jesus will be the one to baptize followers of him with the Holy Spirit. Uh, another time that it's used is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is in the spiritual gifts passage of the, the, the longest spiritual gifts passage in the New Testament. Paul is dealing with uh, some problematic understandings of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. Um, the, the church at Corinth is a, the letter to the church at Corinth is wonderful, but the, the letter is based on a lot of problems that the church of Corinth was dealing with, a lot of theological problems, moral problems, uh, ethical problems, arguing problems, and so part of what Paul's dealing with is he's correcting in his letter, and so chapters 12, 13, and 14 deal with spiritual gifts and we'll try to unpack that a little bit in the weeks to come. But look at verses 12 and 13. For just of uh, 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Uh, as far as the phrase, baptism of the spirit, uh, the only use of that phrase in the New Testament outside of John the Baptist's comment about Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit is found here. The specific phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Plenty of other references to baptism in the New Testament, but baptism of the Spirit, Paul is the only other one to use that phrase specifically, and he uses it here, and basically says we were all baptized in the one body. So what do we do with the views or, or with spirit baptism? How do we define it? How do we make sense of it theologically? Let me walk through seven views, seven different takes on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll unpack what I think Scripture is telling us and indicating for us. So the first view is the Pentecostal view, and I'll give you the blanks there. It is a baptism of the Spirit is subsequent to salvation, so it's a second experience or another experience after conversion. The fundamental sign of spirit baptism is speaking in tongues. That is uh, primarily the Pentecostal view. Now, this view is not tremendously old. It hasn't been around a long time. The primary kind of uh, hinge point or history of the Pentecostal view came about around the turn of the 19th, uh, the 19th and the 20th century when uh, there was a Bible college and, and there was a, a faculty professor at the Bible college. He basically gave the students the assignment to, to study spirit baptism over a particular break. And while they were studying spirit baptism, a young lady uh, began speaking in tongues, and she spoke in tongues for about a half hour, and they met the next day, and they studied again, and she spoke in tongues again for another half hour or, or so. And when the professor came back, they shared the experience with him, and it kind of built up into a, kind of a, a pattern of behavior where they would gather and they would study on this topic, and somebody would speak in tongues. That group of Pentecostal believers eventually moved to Azusa Street uh, in California, and that's really where the Pentecostal uh, perspective of speaking in tongues as a sign gift for being baptized in the Holy Spirit came from. And so, in the Pentecostal view, the evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, okay? So, we'll come back to that in explaining kind of where we take on that in a moment, let me continue with the other views on spirit baptism. A second view or a second group would characterize themselves as charismatic. That would be neo-Pentecostalism. Um, the idea here is that uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. But in the charismatic movement, the broader charismatic movement, the sign gift or the, the sign of being baptized by the Holy Spirit could be speaking in tongues, but it could also be other sign gifts. And the blank there is other sign gifts. So the charismatic movement kind of contains a whole lot of different viewpoints or a whole lot of different kind of uh, heritages. For example, you, can, you could go to Chuck Smith in the 1970s and the Jesus movement in California. Uh, that that some of us have gotten some of our music from. I mean, that, that the history of kind of contemporary Christian music came out of that development. 
Chuck Smith and that Jesus movement tried to take the the specific sign speaking in tongues as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and kind of shift away from that as being the only or the predominant sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and move to other sign gifts such as miracles or, or someone laying their hands on and something extraordinary taking place in that particular event. Um, the charismatic movement is not limited to non-denominational either. There have been charismatic evidences of some type of spiritual event in the Episcopal Church as well as in the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s and 1970s. So the charismatic movement, their, their viewpoint is that the sign of spirit baptism could either be tongues or it could be other sign gifts. Uh, a viewpoint that we may be a little more familiar with or at least a little more connected with here in, in kind of Southern Baptist evangelicalism would be the Keswick movement. And a Keswick is the name of a town in England. Uh, it is pronounced Keswick, not the, the W is silent. The Keswick movement uh, picked up uh, individuals like Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray is a, is a, was a South African Baptist pastor and missionary. I've read several of his books. In fact, if you go to my office, I've got uh, probably a half dozen or so of Andrew Murray's books. Fantastic, encouraging pastor and, and teacher. Uh, but this particular understanding of, of the, the spirit baptism is that it is a second experience after salvation. In other words, that Christians need something deeper than conversion, need something deeper than an initial experience of salvation in order to experience God fully. And so the, the phrase there would be let go and let God. There's this kind of concept that, that in, instead of Christians striving for righteousness, holiness, sanctification, we just need to learn to lean completely on Jesus. Watchman Nee would fall into this category. Some of you have read some of his works over the years. I am much more inclined, I think, toward the, the Keswick movement than maybe the way the Pentecostals or Charismatics might view spirit baptism. However, I, I don't think that, that the Keswick movement and their concepts of needing a second experience, a specific second experience of the Holy Spirit, really are in accord with what Scripture teaches. And so while I've been tremendously helped by the writings of Murray and others over the years, I don't really follow their particular theological tradition of, of, uh, of needing a second experience. So that's the Keswick movement. Number four would be the Reformed Sealers. Uh, their view is that uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also subsequent to salvation, and it is that specific event where the believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we see in Ephesians 1 that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have specific roles in our conversion. And Paul uses the language in Ephesians 1 that the believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit, meaning the, the Spirit is the, is the guarantee, the effective affirmation of our salvation. So every follower of Jesus, every, every person who's saved has the Spirit inside them, okay? This particular tradition says that the sealing of the Holy Spirit is an event that comes after conversion, and it primarily relates to the issue of assurance of salvation. So they would, they would hold that the assurance of salvation or knowing without doubt that one is converted happens when the Holy Spirit seals you, and that can be a second experience or, or another experience following salvation. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, a fantastic preacher and communicator in England in the, in the early 1900s, was a part of, kind of held this particular view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those are the Reformed sealers. The holiness tradition is number five. Uh, this tradition holds different ideas about perfection. John Wesley it would be the, the natural kind of forefather of this particular viewpoint. And, and essentially the idea uh, is, is that conversion is one experience and spirit baptism is another experience that is for sanctification or for making us holy. Uh, John Wesley actually held, some of his followers really held this more tightly, that one could become spiritually perfect post-salvation. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that, that we could do away with all the sins we had committed before salvation, but essentially the viewpoint was that you could walk in the Spirit so faithfully that we could, as Christians, live in a perfect manner from some point moving forward. Uh, that was kind of the view. And a second experience, baptism of the Spirit, was the kind of uh, event mechanism or experience mechanism that would lead you into that experience of perfection or holiness. So that's the holiness tradition. Uh, a sixth position would be held by the Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and Orthodox Christians. Uh, essentially, they hold that a spirit baptism occurs at confirmation. So while there may be an intellectual assent to the gospel prior to confirmation, uh, at confirmation when a child or a young adult goes through those classes and is affirmed by the church as having understood the doctrine that the church teaches or having grasped uh, the specific expectations that the, doc that the church teaches, then that confirmation would be a public affirmation that that individual is baptized by the Spirit. Uh, the problem with Roman Catholicism in that particular setting is that by about 1160 or so, the Roman Catholic Church had, had connected the seven sacraments as salvific means of coming to know God. In other words, if you follow those sacraments in an active way, then you're, you're converted. And, of course, that's in contrast with what we believe that conversion takes place by work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God saves us apart from our works. And so that's, that's a tension point and, and part of the reason that we don't hold to that particular viewpoint on spirit baptism. The Reformed view of spirit baptism and the view that I hold is that spirit baptism comes at conversion. That when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and becomes a follower of Christ, personally, the Holy Spirit comes into that person, lives inside that person, and dwells that person. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches uh, regarding spirit baptism, that they are one and the same. There can be other experiences of God after conversion. In fact, in the normal Christian life, there should be multiple experiences of God following conversion. And we might use the language, one baptism, many fillings of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that every believer is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are certainly times... If we're honest, if you're honest, there are certainly times we don't act as if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? I watched a basketball game the other night, Monday night. I wasn't very filled with the Spirit during moments of that basketball game. Some of you can relate. There are times when my children don't obey. 
and I wish I could tell you I'm the most patient, godly pastor dad that that's ever existed. I'm not, and there are times that I'm not very filled with the Holy Spirit, and then there are times where I know that God is indwelling me and filling me, and, and I'm, I'm overflowing with God's work in my life. So one baptism, many feelings is probably the way that I would describe that. Now, let me unpack why I think that is the case and where I think we can get that from, from the pages of Scripture. Why is spirit baptism connected to conversion? And then what do we do with the sign gifts? What do we do with speaking in tongues? What do we do with those evidently extra special experiences of what God is doing in someone's life or apparent extra special experiences of what God is doing in someone's life. And where do we get those from anyway? Of course, we get those from the book of Acts. And I'm going to ask if you would to turn with me to the book of Acts. And we're going to look at several different verses in the book and try to unpack what, what, what I think is taking place with the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Um, in your copy of Scripture, you might come to Acts chapter 1 introduction to the book, and it's going to say something like this, the Acts of the Apostles, right? Your Bible say that? The Acts of the Apostles. It might be better articulated to say the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the the primary mover in the book. The Apostles in chapter 1 are waiting up in the upper room doing what Jesus told them to do. He said, wait there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It said that in the book of John. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, begin reading with me in verse 6 for a second. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's they asked Jesus, this is as he was about to ascend into heaven. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you not at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And he had said these things as they were looking. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus made a specific proclamation. It is uh, a, another way of Jesus giving the Great Commission, as is already recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a fifth statement of the Great Commission that our responsibility and obligation as the witnesses of the gospel who've received the gospel were to share the gospel with others. The way Jesus words it here is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon the apostles prior to Acts chapter 1. And so you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the way that Jesus worded that. I think it's very helpful if we look at Acts 1-8 as an outline for the book of Acts. And, and one of the reasons I say that is because what you'll discover, if you look at the spiritual experiences of speaking in tongues, they follow the pattern that is described here in Acts 1-8. Let me give you an example. Move to chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. It's the apostles and all the followers. There were about 120 of them there in an upper room, as described earlier. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's what took place. 
They were in the upper room. They'd been praying. The Holy Spirit fell. Tongues of fire. There's some kind of visible expression of that. Fell upon the apostles. They started speaking to one another. And then they started preaching to the crowds that had gathered. Uh, And we discovered that sermon and that preaching that took place in Acts chapter 2. Some interesting observations about this particular event that are in contrast from some of how speaking in tongues are experienced and expressed today. If you continue reading through this story in the book of Acts, the miracle, the sign gift of speaking in tongues, is not primarily about someone speaking an unknown language or a language that, is, uh, that, is, that, is, uh, that doesn't make sense. The primary gift or the primary blessing of Acts 2 is that as the preachers, the apostles, were preaching, they were preaching and those that were gathered there were hearing in their home language. So the, the, the Jews from all over the world had gathered at, at, at Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. That's what they did. They, they were continuing to observe the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. This was one of the celebrations. So Jews had come from Rome, and Jews had come from other parts of the Roman Empire. They'd gathered there, and the, the preachers, the apostles, started preaching. And, and then what they would, the person who was traveling from Rome or traveling from Macedonia or traveling from wherever they were from, the miracle is that as someone was preaching, they weren't hearing, well, they could look and say, that person's speaking Jewish, they were hearing in, in Latin, or they were hearing in their home language. That was the miracle of the, the tongue gift in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And it was an obvious sign that something was taking place. In fact, the, the crowds thought the preachers were drunk. Okay, that's an in- interesting aside. We, we don't have to go down that rabbit trail at all, but it's an interesting aside that the crowds thought the preachers were drunk. And Peter said, we're not drunk. It's only about 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, what's interesting is he didn't say, I'm a teetotaler. He said, it's only about 9 o'clock in the morning. That, that's a whole other aside. We could go down that rabbit trail another day. Nevertheless, uh, they preached and 3,000 were converted that day. So the Holy Spirit fell. And I want you to note this as far as the outline is concerned. That happened in Jerusalem. So there was a speaking in tongue sign gift that took place in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit fell upon Peter and fell upon Peter primarily. He's the primary communicator on this particular day in this particular sermon. reason that's important is because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had said, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And he proceeded to say some, a phrase that's, that's really strange to our ears. He said, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And we don't talk about that or preach about that very often. But I think at the very least, when God, when Jesus said to Peter, we're giving you the keys of the kingdom, he is articulating something that is going to be worked out in the book of Acts. Meaning that that Peter is essentially going to be the spokesperson for the church, which is very wonderful because Peter's also the one that denied Jesus. So God gave him grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion and then used him to be the spokesperson. And if we think about what a key is for, a key is for opening a door. Okay, if we think about the door being, or the doors being, the outline of the book of Acts, what we discover is the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles in Acts 2, and the door of the, of, of the gospel was opened to Jerusalem and Judea. Where that makes sense is if you move on to Acts chapter 8,
So after Acts 8, uh, Saul had, uh, had stood there and watched Stephen be crucified, or not crucified, stoned rather. The church scattered. Uh, look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So that's what the church scattered and they shared the gospel. And Philip, one of the deacons, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out, and many who had healed them, or who had them, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money. That's Simon the magician. We won't go into the details of that story. Um, but the bottom line is that what happened in Samaria is people in Samaria heard the gospel. Remember, you will receive power, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem and Judea? Samaria. Jerusalem and Judea, meaning that the Holy Spirit fell and the preachers, the apostles, preached the gospel and thousands were converted. And if you can read the story of how that took place, Acts 2 through Acts 7. Thousands were converted. You get to Acts 8 and the gospel is continuing to spread. Philip goes to Samaria. They heard the word. They received the gospel, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit until John and Peter showed up. They heard that they had received the word, they testified that they had received the word, and Peter and John laid their hands on them. And what happened? The believers in Samaria received the Holy Spirit. Now, the text doesn't say that they spoke in tongues. But notice the way it's phrased, when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving through the laying on of hands. In other words, there was some kind of visible manifestation of the Spirit coming upon the believers in Samaria. It doesn't say it's speaking in tongues. It certainly could have been. It would fall in line with other things that take place in the book of Acts. Move on to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 is this wonderful story of Peter and Cornelius. Uh, Peter had this vision about uh, unclean animals, and immediately after that, Cornelius had sent men to say, come get Peter, he's going to tell you something that will help you to know me. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile. And notice what took place in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth, and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and with power he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. You are witnesses of these things. Peter continued his sermon. Move to verse 44, please. While Peter was still saying these things, while he was preaching, okay, while he was proclaiming the good news to them, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing 
these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. So what took place? Well, God sent Peter to preach to Cornelius. Cornelius and his family, his household, heard the gospel. As they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And one of the signs that the Holy Spirit had come to the Gentiles was that they spoke in tongues. So what you, what you see, if you look at Acts 1-8 as an outline, you see the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles, Jerusalem and Judea, the gospel proclaimed to the Jews, the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Then that message going to Samaria and the Holy Spirit falling in specific, at a, the specific invitation of Peter laying his hands on, Peter and John laying his hands on the believers. And then you see in Acts 10, Peter showed up. Again, if we think about him in terminology having the keys of the kingdom, God is using Peter to open the doors of the gospel going from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. And what you're going to discover if you look at the rest of the book of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel to the nations, primarily using the apostle Paul. And there's only one other instance in the book of Acts where there is a speaking in tongue event. That happens in Acts chapter 19. It's worth looking at for just a brief moment. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. There are no other instances in the book of Acts of someone or a group of people speaking in tongues. There are plenty of other conversion stories in the book of Acts. There's the, the story of the jailer. There's the story of, of other converts in the book of Acts. No other story is identified with a believer speaking in tongues other than these that I've mentioned to you. Now, why is this story one where they spoke in tongues? Personally, I tend to think that the reason that Luke recorded this this way is to affirm Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. If Peter had the keys of the kingdom and opened the door to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth or the Gentiles, then what happens with Paul laying his hands on and the believers there speaking in tongues references that the believers didn't know the gospel. They had just followed John's baptism, but it also affirms Paul's ministry as an apostle. It essentially puts him on equal footing with Peter, in essence, and values him in the life of the church, which is part of what's taking place in the book of Acts because the focus of the rest of Acts is on the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles or to the nations. So, uh, what I think that the Scripture clearly teaches, and you can follow the outline there that I've put together, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what takes place when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. In the instances of speaking in tongues, 
And Paul articulates this in 1 Corinthians 12. The instances of speaking in tongues are sign gifts, Paul's own words. He said they're sign gifts for unbelievers, meaning that the, the speaking in tongues that took place was to affirm to unbelievers that something supernatural was at work, that something unique was at work. And that was the goal or the role of speaking in tongues. So let me give you a couple of interpretive keys that, that kind of help us make sense of this for our own time, and then we'll walk through a little bit of what's taking place in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 with the other kind of versions of speaking in tongues that maybe we see in the book of Acts. For starters, remember that the book of Acts is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. So one of the things that we need to grasp is that there are different genres of uh, biblical literature, and there's different genres in some ways shape, well, not some ways, they do shape how we interpret those particular genres. For example, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, gives us the book of Ephesians, that is intended to be instructional. Paul is telling us not only theology, but how we live out theology. The book of Acts is a narrative. There are plenty of prescriptions in the book of Acts. There are plenty of things that we should read the book of Acts and we should say, I need to practice this. But a lot of the book of Acts is intended to be descriptive to us. Here's what took place. It's not intended for us to say, we need to follow this pattern in order for us to have the full experience of who God is or what God wants in our lives. And, and that makes clear sense if we go back and think about the Gospels in a narrative sense as well. I mean, certainly I want to follow Jesus, and you want to follow Jesus, but none of us expect that Jesus is going to walk down in our midst and heal somebody uh, as he's walking among us, heal somebody who has, you know, who is paralyzed. We know that those events took place. We believe them. Jesus is absolutely able to do that. But we also realize that we're not to try to recreate those events in our own Christian lives. It doesn't make us any less than having a relationship with God if God doesn't step down out of heaven, walk on planet earth, and perform the same miracles he performed in the Gospels. The same exact way, that's the same exact way I think we need to think about the book of Acts. Yes, there are plenty of things about the book of Acts that we ought to try to emulate as followers of Jesus and as a church. But we don't have to recreate those moments in order to have all of God that we need. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes some of the theological problems associated with speaking in tongues as the sign gift for having the Holy Spirit, they do that. They basically read the book of Acts and say this is a normative experience for a Christian, and so every Christian ought to have this experience. And when a Christian doesn't have this experience, it creates a problem with their understanding of both their own salvation and conversion and their own practice of faith. And I, I know of people who come out of kind of Pentecostal backgrounds where the expectation is if you have the Holy Spirit, you must speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And, and there are folks who have been encouraged to speak in tongues and express that gift, and they, it's not there. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a gift that they've ever experienced. It's not a gift they know how to express. And so what do they do? They leave the church feeling like they don't have all of God. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say every Christian has to have this specific expression of a gift. Now, the Bible does say that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will have the Holy Spirit. 
That's an absolute affirmation for every believer. But the Bible then never articulates that the Holy Spirit will express himself in a specific way for all believers. Gifts are just that. They're gifts. The way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is he says, the Holy Spirit, let's go there. We, We don't have time to unpack all of it, obviously. Well, we do. We could be here till 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock tonight. But I think we have a deacon's meeting and y'all want to go home. Look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One is given the spirit of utterance, of wisdom, and to another knowledge according to the same spirit. Another faith by the same spirit. Another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Another were the working of miracles. And to another prophecy. And another the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's discernment. To another various kinds of tongues. And to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, what Paul says about spiritual gifts is that it's the role of the Holy Spirit to distribute what gifts he wants the church to have or wants individuals in the church to have. Uh, This is a beautiful affirmation of the need for all believers. Beautiful affirmation. Um, We'll come to that in a takeaway. Let me look at the the second interpretive key there. And this is is something I want us to land on. The challenge of biblical interpretation and gift application require or... uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't edit this very well. Require, just scratch out encourage, or if you like encourage better than require, scratch out require. I didn't edit my sentence very well. I didn't proofread. To look at the text, not our predisposed experiences or our doctrinal lenses to make sense of the Spirit's sign gifts. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Many within the spirit baptism is a second experience camp, whatever version of that they fall in. They are driving their theology through experience. Experience is absolutely necessary for a believer in terms of coming to faith in Christ. Every one of us needs an experience. We need an experience of the Holy Spirit convicting us and us putting our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Experiences are not to be shied away from. They, and, and I've had plenty of experiences in the life of the church, plenty of worship experiences, of God doing things. There's nothing wrong with experience. But when experiences drive our theology, that's problematic because... My experiences might be different from your experiences. Experiences are not universal. Scripture is universal and authoritative. So if someone speaks in tongues, and, and, and man, I don't, I don't really have time to go there, do I? I'm going to have to come back next week. We're going to finish this up next week. Because I don't want to leave you hanging, and I certainly don't want to not explain clearly enough because that would be dangerous to leave it unclear. So what we'll do, we'll come back next week and we'll pick up essentially where I left off. We will discuss what is then the, the modern day experience and expression of speaking in tongues. What does that look like? What do we do with that in terms of how we view that issue? Because then the other side is we don't let doctrinal lens 
make sense, make the primary sense of the spirit sign gifts. I know people who are in, in kind of my camp on the issue of spirit baptism that I think misinterpret sections of Scripture because they're so uncomfortable with the way some of the sign gifts in the Bible have been expressed or declared in modern-day experiences. And so instead of letting the Bible guide our, their practice, they let their particular doctrinal position guide their practice. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come back and unpack that statement a little more fully next week when we begin with that. Let me give you the takeaways, and that will at least give us something encouraging to walk away with. Takeaway number one, what we should do. We should seek out the normative and biblical work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What's the normative and biblical work? It is empowerment for witness and fruit-filled sanctification. What should we seek out? Well, Acts 1.8. Do you know somebody who needs to know Jesus? I do. I'm planning to go to lunch with somebody next Wednesday. Pray for them. Pray that they'll come to know Christ as the Lord and Savior. Okay, I need to be empowered when I share the gospel. I need to be empowered when I preach the gospel. The gospel, the Holy Spirit works with the gospel in order to bring people to conversion. Who does the work? Not the messenger. That's all we are as messengers. The Holy Spirit does the work. But what we want and what we pray for and what you do see in the book of Acts that is something we ought to seek out to, to replicate in our own lives is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit when we preach or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit when we witness. That's what we ought to seek out. I want God to empower me. Some of you, the reason you struggle to witness and share the gospel of Jesus Christ is because you're trying to do it in your own strength. You're not trying to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll unpack that a little more next week again, but, but that's part of the issue. The second thing we ought to seek out is the Holy Spirit's role, primary role in our lives as Christians is to make us more like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is, are these things. That's what the Holy Spirit wants in our lives. Let me just say this. We've got enough work to do in seeking out the empowerment of the Spirit in witnessing in our lives, and the fruit-filling of the Spirit in the way we characterize our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control, that will last us a lifetime. If you're uncomfortable with the sign gifts and speaking in tongues and all that, it's not our typical practice here at Wilkesboro Baptist anyway. But if you're uncomfortable with that, that's okay. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a little more detail next week. What we need to focus on are the things we know and are clear, and it's obvious what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives, which is make us like Jesus and use us to tell people about Jesus. Can I get an amen? Second takeaway, because every believer is gifted, every believer should be serving to edify the body of Christ. I'll unpack that more because we're going to walk through the spiritual gifts next week in, in a little more detail. Bottom line, folks, if you know Jesus, you have a spiritual gift. Doesn't matter whether you feel like you do. Doesn't matter whether you think you do. If you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit's inside of you, you have a spiritual gift. And God intends every believer to use their spiritual gift. You ever given somebody something and they didn't appreciate it? You kind of set it on the shelf. If you're married, you've done this. I mean, it's happened in your married life. Your spouse got you something and you could care less about it, or you got your spouse something and they could care less about it. And, and for some people, it's not a big deal. If your love language is not, spirit, is not the love language of gifts, that's kind of cool. 
That's kind of that, that takes you off the hook. I'm gonna tell you something. If you got a spouse and his or her love language is gifts, and you don't give a good gift, or you don't give a gift, and you're you're in trouble, or you don't appreciate the gift that they give you, you're in trouble, right? It sits on the shelf. Well, listen, the Holy Spirit gave you a gift. Why is your sitting on the shelf? I'll I'll probably preach a little bit next week when we talk about that. So if you want to come back and learn what I think about speaking in tongues today and all that, great, you're in for a little bit of a guilt trip. So you you get both in next Wednesday night. So the last thing we should, last takeaway, we should seek Jesus. We should seek to glorify Jesus. And we should seek to adhere to biblical truth as opposed to seeking experiences as an end in themselves. Listen, I, I love it when God moves in a special way in the life of our church. Um, in some ways, I get to uniquely observe this. There are three services that we have on Sunday at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. All of them are wonderful. All of them, there's truth being sung and truth being preached. But there are some Sundays, one or the other of the services, and Al, you probably remember this, there's just something different about a service. It's not that the other service was bad. It's not that, that, I mean, it could be somebody's thwarting the Spirit by their attitude or their desire or their something going on in their lives, but there's just something special sometimes about a service. God moves in just a special way. Experiences are fantastic. It's good when we have them. But what we ought to pursue and seek after is, are we glorifying Jesus? Are we seeking Jesus? And are we adhering to biblical truth? If that's happening in our lives, if that's what we're doing, then as much as I desire a special move of God, and we ought to pray for revival, we ought to pray for God's Spirit to fall. Can I just say this very clearly? I want revival to take place at our church, but if we never experience a special move of God in revival, we're not less than Christians than the ones that are experiencing that in Asbury or than the people in the Great Awakening hundreds of years ago, or than the people in the book of Acts. You know why I know we're not less than Christians? Because you have the same Holy Spirit that Peter had 2,000 years ago. You have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had when he laid his hands on the believers 2,000 years ago. You have the same Holy Spirit that's present at Asbury University moving among the people of God. What we ought to seek is making sure that we're adhering to biblical truth and we're not a limitation of what God wants to do because we're in the way. That's what we ought to seek out. If experiences come, let them come. That's God's job. God's job is to bring those about in His timing. Why did the Holy Spirit fall on Pentecost and not 10 days before? I don't know. It's when God sent the Holy Spirit. It's God's timing and God's plan. How about this one for you? Think about it in these terms. Why we ought not to judge our, our, our truth by experiences or judge, judge whether truth is being shared by experiences. Read Acts 2 and what happened. 3,000 people came to know Jesus when Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2. Read Acts 17 when Paul preached at Athens. Only a handful of people came to know Jesus. Is Peter a better preacher than Paul? Peter preach a better sermon? No, I think the I think the difference is is the context of the people he's preaching to, and the Holy Spirit fell in a way at Pentecost differently than he fell at Athens. Probably hundreds of reasons why, but the truth that was preached is the same truth. 
What we need to be concerned about is are we lining up with truth? Are we seeking Jesus and are we glorifying Jesus? And if we are, then we'll have enough experiences to keep our faith going. But if we don't have the experiences we long for, that doesn't mean we're less than. It doesn't make God anything less than in our lives. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 